Good morning, everyone. Great to have you here. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you're new here with us, uh, this part of our, of our gathering, we, we look into the Word of God and seek God's wisdom uh, and instruction for our lives. Uh, we have been in the book of Luke for the past little while. We're still in the book of Luke today. So if you have a Bible, you could turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 18 and 35. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or you forgot yours, uh, there are always some on the tables on your way in. Uh, or today, we're going to have all the scre- uh, verses up on the screen as we work our way through. So that's even easier. Uh, why don't I pray for us before we uh, dive in, and, uh, and then we'll see what God has for us this morning. Lord, thank you. Thank you, God, for this beautiful day. Thank you for a long weekend. Uh, thank you most of all, Lord, that uh, you are not silent. God, you're speaking to us all the time, in particular, Lord, through, through your word. And God, I thank you that we now have a chance to come in and hear from you. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us uh, to be open-hearted and open-minded. I pray, Lord, as we examine this portion of the book of uh, Luke and look into the, the life of Jesus a little more deeply, uh, God, that you would help us to understand him more. And also, in particular here, uh, help, uh, help us to understand ourselves more, especially those times in which we doubt, which is, which is a subject today, Lord. So, so I pray you'd help me uh, to be helpful, and Lord, uh, be with us now, bring peace, bring understanding. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, indeed, doubt is the uh, subject of our passage and of our sermon today. Uh, this is a subject that I think is, is just really uh, applicable for, for anyone inside and outside the church. Doubt is one of those things that all human beings tend to experience. We doubt all sorts of, all sorts of things. We doubt... Um, those in authority over us very often. We doubt each other. We doubt ourselves very often. Uh, we also doubt God. Doubt is, is part of the human life, and we're going to see here in our passage today that it's also part of the things that God speaks to in his word. As I was thinking about doubt, uh, there was a, a play that came to mind, a play that was, ma- was made into a movie Uh, The play is from 2005. It actually won a Pulitzer Prize and a Tony Award, really a big play. Uh, The official title of the play is Doubt, a Parable. Uh, It was made into a movie. You can see it there. Uh, It takes place in a Catholic school in the Bronx in 1964. The two main uh, characters are Sister Aloysius, who is the principal of the school, and then uh, Father Flynn, who is the parish priest. The, The plot of the of the play uh, has to do with uh, suspicions that Sister Aloysius has about Father Flynn and about his conduct with some of the boys. And the the duration of the play is spent with her trying to come to a point of certainty, to to come to a place where she eliminates all doubt. But really, doubt is the subject of the play. Uh, The playwright, uh, John Patrick Shanley, wanted to write a, a play that would help us to examine the doubts that we have in life and in faith. And he opens the play with a sermon from Father Flynn And in that sermon, Father Flynn gives a picture of doubt. So I want to read for you what he would be sort of preaching. Imagine him there preaching to his fictitious uh, church. And here's what he says. He says, I want to tell you a story. A cargo ship sank, and all her crew was drowned. Only this one sailor survived. He made a raft with some spars, and being of nautical discipline, he turned his eyes to the heavens and read the stars and set a course for home. And then exhausted, he fell asleep. Clouds rolled in and blanketed the sky. And for the next 20 days, he floated in this vast ocean, but he could no longer see the stars. He thought he was on course, but there was no way of of being certain. And as the days rolled on, he wasted away with fevers, with thirst, with starvation, and he began to have doubts. He had set his course, but was it right? 
Was he still headed towards home or was he horribly lost and doomed to a terrible death? There's no way to know. The message of the, the constellations, had he imagined them? Had they been real or had he been desperate? Had he in fact seen the truth once and now had to hold on to it without further reassurance? That was his dilemma on a voyage without apparent end. And he ends with this. There are those of you in church today who know exactly the crisis of faith that I describe. That picture, that picture of doubt, I think is one that we can identify with. Especially for those of us who who have been part of the church, we would call ourselves a person of faith. It's one that we can identify with because there are times, aren't there? In life, for we, we know the course that we have set. We, we've heard from God, we've believed, and yet because of the clouds, it's sometimes difficult to believe if we're still going in the right direction or even believe that God is at work in our lives. So this is not something new. It's something that uh, people felt in church in 1964, people feel today, and amazingly, even when Jesus was on earth, it's something that they felt then. Uh, our passage is, is about a man of great faith, John the Baptist, John the Baptist who baptized Jesus. And yet we're going to see here in this passage that, that even he, he, he had doubts about whether Jesus was even the Messiah. So through his doubts, through Jesus' response to them, uh, we gain valuable insight into the nature of doubt and uh, how we can gain certainty in our doubts. So we're going to work our way through this text in three parts. I'm going to call it a doubt sandwich, except the doubt is the bread. So doubt... And then uh, proof in the middle, and then doubt again on the back end. Uh, I'm going to read through sort of a section at a time. I'm not going to go through all the beginning because it's fairly long. So we're going to begin in verse 18 uh, with the disciples of John. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Pause there for a moment. Uh, Just so we get in our minds. The things that they reported to John were all the stuff that Jesus had been doing. So for the past couple weeks, we've seen Jesus healing people, Jesus raising the dead, amazing things. The disciples of John go and tell John what's been going on. Okay, verse 19. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So we'll pause there for a moment. A little bit of context, in case you're not uh, clear. John the Baptist was like the opening act for Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the big show. John the Baptist was the one who proclaimed that the Messiah was coming. So John the Baptist was a man of great conviction. Uh, he was the one who was the voice crying out in the wilderness. He had what must have been one of the most amazing spiritual experiences. He baptized Jesus. And as he baptized him, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, landed on Jesus, and the voice of God spoke and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Man, talk about like, like assurance of your faith. I think this is the guy. He would have thought. And in fact, you see that after because he goes and he tells his disciples, look, now is the time. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. He seems very sure. A man of great conviction. And yet, if you look at the, the question that he's asking, it's very clear that he is having some serious doubts about whether Jesus is actually the Messiah. And so you kind of wonder, what is it that's changed? Why would John, of all people, come and ask Jesus these questions? Well, a couple things. Uh, one of the main things that's happened is, is that John is in prison. John is in a season of his life where we would, we would say he's in a, a storm season. 
There's clouds, there's their difficulties, and he's not just any, in any prison. He is in a prison in the fortress of Machaerus, which we have ruins of still. Here's a picture of it. It's like this hilltop fortress, and you can see probably something like the dungeon of what he would have been in. So it, it's desolate, it's hot and dusty. This is actually where Herod had his palace, and so in this place is where John would be beheaded, probably in about a year or so. He was put there by Herod because he criticized him uh, for marrying his, his sister-in-law, I think. So, so he's, he's a man of conviction. He speaks up, and now he's in a situation where, you know, this is not what he thought would happen, right? You can imagine him in jail there wondering, like, wait a second, Jesus, you're the Messiah, right? You're the one sent from God? Why am I in jail? Like, I, I'm, I'm the prophet who told everyone that you were coming, and you were supposed to bring a new kingdom. Why are the Romans still in charge? Everything that John thought would happen with Jesus was not happening the way that he thought it would. So you can imagine him in that hot, dusty cell after days and weeks and months, eventually having some doubts. You can imagine him saying, you know, maybe, maybe I baptized the wrong Messiah. Like maybe he's not the guy. Maybe there's someone else coming who's really going to take care of things the way that things should be taken care of. We can identify, I think, with John, can't we? Have there not been times in our lives and we've, we've been sure, and yet now in this season, it's, man, it's tough to believe that Jesus is really active in our life. I mean, I know, I know we're gathered here as the church, right? I know we came in and three people asked us how we're doing. We said, we're fine. We're great. and Everything's great. But we know that there are times when things are not actually great. And we struggle to understand how it is that God could be in charge. Jesus could be our savior, and yet th this is going on. See, this kind of doubt is doubt that comes from a troubled heart. This first kind of doubt, the one that John is having, is, is doubt in the storm. What are the things that cloud your sense of faith? What are the storm clouds that make it difficult for you to continue believing, having a sense of certainty about Jesus? If you're like me, uh, it probably has something to do with frustrated expectations. Are there not things that we thought would happen a certain way? We, we thought that parenting would be easier than it is. I don't know why we would think that, but we might have thought that. Maybe we figured that we would have a promotion by now with this, this work that we we entered into, uh, maybe we assumed that God would take away our cravings, Wh whatever those are, that we thought that, you know, we come to faith, we believe, we trust, we're praying, we're, and we thought that it would get easier. It's not getting easier. Maybe we started to wonder, how, you know, I wonder if this Christianity thing is, is actually really helpful. You know, maybe there's somewhere else that I should be looking for help. Maybe there's someone else who can really help me with what needs to be done. See, those are the kind of thoughts that John is having. And what we see here is that they don't necessarily mean that all faith has been abandoned. Because what we see in, in John is he, he is being overwhelmed by the storms of life, but, but in his reaction to it, we do see faith. Because he turns to Jesus. He comes to Jesus or sends his messengers and he asks some very important questions. Look at them again in verse 20. Uh, he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now this is the right question because it takes his focus off of the storm and puts it on Jesus himself. It gives Jesus a chance to respond and Jesus answers with powerful proof about who he is. 
So we move first from the, the first kind of doubt, doubt from a troubled heart now to, to the proof that God provides. Uh, and this begins in verse 21. So Jesus has the messengers of John in front of him. Here's how he responds. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So you notice the first proof he gives is action. He says, you're wondering if I'm Messiah? Take a look at this. Lame person healed, deaf person healed, blind person healed for an hour. He just goes on and on and on. People are raised. It's the hour of power, like legit one. (laughs) So imagine them watching this and the crowd watching this and just being astounded. And then Jesus speaks. And what he does is he ties all of, all that he has done back to the Old Testament scripture. And he says, look, this is, you've been waiting for the Messiah. The Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah in particular, said that, I, said that the Messiah would look like this. Here, here's one of them uh, from Isaiah 61.1. Uh, speaking of the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the, the anointed one, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is what they were expecting, that the Messiah would come, that There would be those who were healed. There would be good news preached. And Jesus is saying, look, it's here. I'm here. If you're wondering whether I'm the guy, I got the goods. The power of God is flowing through me. The ministry of God is happening. You don't have to look anywhere else. You don't have to doubt. I I am the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. It's a powerful display. But but notice what, what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say anything about John getting out of prison. He doesn't say anything about establishing a new kingdom here and now and the Romans being being done away with. Instead, what he does is is he shows his power, he proclaims his connection to the Old Testament, and then he gives a warning. Look at verse 23. And Jesus says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The implication, John, I feel like you're a bit offended that I'm not doing things the way that you wanted me to do them. And you need to know, if you want the blessing of God, you cannot be offended by the way that I do things. Now, Jesus isn't just speaking to to John. There's there's lots of people in that day that were uh, offended or disappointed, certainly confused about what Jesus was doing and how he was doing it. Because he wasn't the kind of Messiah they were expecting. They were thinking, okay, what about the, like, aren't we going to reestablish the nation of Israel? Like, isn't that on the agenda somewhere? Aren't we going to, Isn't there armies from heaven coming at some point to get rid of all these soldiers? Like, when is all the the great stuff going to happen? Jesus didn't seem to be working on any of that. He was very focused, though, on the heart. He he was preaching from the very beginning about repentance and about the the good news. Look at uh, Matthew 4, 17. This is one of the first things that Jesus says. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people heard kingdom of heaven, yeah, that sounds good. I don't know what that is, but that sounds great. A new kingdom, I like that. But what they come to find is he's speaking first and foremost about a kingdom of the heart where we identify sin. We feel the weight of sin. We turn to God for forgiveness and for grace. And see, that message has always offended people because we don't like it when people point out that that we need help or that we're not as great as we think we are. And it also disappoints us. It disappoints us because we all have, 
we all have our own expectations about what we think Jesus should be doing in our life. And when it doesn't happen, we get, we get very confused. We get very upset. So Jesus' warning here is not just for John. It's not just for the crowd. It's also for us. See, Jesus is giving us proof about who he is. He, amazing displays of power. Amazing connections to the Old Testament. What he's saying is, you can't just acknowledge this. You need to accept it. You, you can't just be aware of who I am. You need to come to the point where you're not offended by me. Where, where you embrace who I am. Have you, have you felt that sense of being put out by the things that are happening or not happening in your life? Times of being disappointed by God. Have the, has the lack of activity in your mind by, by what God is not doing, has that led to times of doubt? Where, where you're, just, you're just wondering, Jesus, are, like, are you really even there? Like I'm praying, I, I'm, I'm trying to seek you, I'm trying to trust you, but it just doesn't seem like you're even listening to what I'm saying. See, in our minds, we think, look, if, God, if you're not dealing with this, I mean, this is the obvious problem in my life. And, and if you're not going to deal with this, then, then how can I believe that you care for me? But let's question that for a moment. Like, what if the biggest problems in our lives are not the most obvious ones? Like, what if there, there are bigger things that are tougher for us to see, but God sees clearly, and he's actually working on the biggest issues of our lives. I was trying to think of a way to help us see this. This is hard for us. And so I thought uh, it'd be fun to play a game, right? Long weekend. And went for a game? All right, we're going to play it anyway. Uh, here's the game. The game is called Which Plan is Best? Right? If we had game show music, we would play it at this point, but we're not going to do that. Okay, so here's the way the game works. I'm going to give you a real-life situation a crisis, and then we are going to look at two potential plans of what God could do to show his love for us, okay? So here's the first one. Situation number one, financial crisis. We have realized that we are in serious debt. Now, part of this is not our fault. We've had less uh, work, less shifts at work. We've also had some unexpected expenses. The car broke down, the lawnmower broke down. There's been some things we, we, had, we had to pay for. If we're honest, we would say there's probably some of it that might be our fault. We had to buy a few things, some essentials, right? We had to get a, a new TV that had the smart TV because we didn't like to have to watch Netflix here and something else over there. So we had, to, we had to get that. Also, last summer, we had to get a jet ski because we were going off with, you know, we needed the jet ski. And there's a few other things we had to buy. So anyway, we're in a bit of debt. We've been praying about it. Lord, please, please help us. There are two plans that God could do. Plan A, God who loves us more than the birds of the air, more than the lilies of the field, he answers our prayer right away. We get a check in the mail from a distant relative who felt compelled by the Spirit of God to send us $15,000. Praise Jesus. Right? That would be amazing. We would give all, that mean we would be glorifying God so much. If we got that check, answered our prayers, that'd be fantastic. Plan B. God does not provide any immediate cash. In fact, he allows us to experience the consequences of our greed and our foolishness, but during that time, we learn to trust him more as we are on our knees in daily prayer. Slowly, we reorganize our lives, spend less, work more, and find a way out of debt. More than that, over the next three to five years, we really find greater satisfaction in God rather than the things we can buy. Praise Jesus. I'm not going to have you vote out loud because I know you don't vote for the second one because you know it's the right one, even though... If we're honest, the first one, is that not how we tend to pray? 
Do we not tend to associate immediate action by God with, with his power and his glory and his love for us? And yet the truth of the matter is that there are some deep-seated issues in our heart that, that takes time and that God often is working at over time, allowing us to, to sit in those difficulties so that we might trust him more. Okay, I got one more. I can tell you think this is fun. Okay, situation number two. Marital crisis. The man that we married has changed. Before we got married, he was attentive, he was engaged, he was affectionate, but after two years of marriage, he has totally checked out. He doesn't want to talk to us for two hours every evening anymore. He has stopped writing love messages on sticky notes and leaving them in our lunch. In fact, he has stopped making our lunch. Even though we have nagged him about this every day, and we have had many fights about it, he still is not responding. In fact, he seems to be pulling away more. We have prayed about this. There are two options of what God might do. Plan A, God fixes our husband's heart immediately. He repents of his selfishness, and he dotes on us for the rest of our lives together. Praise God. Ladies, yes, that is the one we want. Please, Lord, move now. I don't even think we need to read plan B, but we're going to read it. Plan B. Plan B is this. God doesn't seem to do anything in our husband for a long time. But, but he does slowly reveal our own selfishness, which is a surprise to us, and our unreasonable expectations, and then teaches both of us to love each other humbly and selflessly over the next 40 years of marriage. Again, I know which one that, if I made you put up your hand, you would vote for, but... But we, do we not tend to pray towards the first one? We associate immediate heart change in the people around us as an answer to our prayers. And yet if God were to do that, very often we would miss the opportunity for what he wants to do in our own lives. See, our plans tend to deal with the obvious problems, and that means we want obvious, immediate solutions. But God's plans, they always deal with the bigger problems, the deeper problems, problems of sin, problems of weak faith, problems of a lack of character growth. And what Jesus is saying here in his demonstration, in his words, he, he's giving proof that, that he is for us, that he loves us, that he is working in miraculous ways, in amazing ways, but also in his ways. And that's sometimes difficult for us to accept. But what it does is it, right here, he's pointing forward to the greatest proof of his love for all of humanity. Because he is on the road to the cross. And at the cross, we see all of this power, all of this love. It's all condensed to one single moment, one event. Where Jesus lays himself out for our sake. He, he, for all time, is telling all of humanity, look, this is how I feel about you. This is the, the extent to which I will go to make sure that you have joy and peace and hope in your life. I'm giving my own life for you. To, to clear the record of debt, to, to take away the, the weight of sin, to, to free you from the, the control of sin in your life. All of the essential problems of your life are rooted here and I've done what needs to be done to set you free. So I may not be doing things exactly the way that you would like, but if you're ever unclear about how I feel about you, you have a beacon of proof, of hope, and it's the cross so what Jesus is saying to John, to the crowd, and to, and to us is, look, don't be offended by the way that I do things. Don't be frustrated or doubtful. If you really see the cross 
clearly, then, then if you ask this question, look, has Jesus ever really disappointed anyone? The answer has to be no. The answer has to be, Jesus, in light of what you've done, and for the people there, they, they couldn't yet see it. That's the benefit we have. We know now God's plan for salvation. We can see clearly at any point in our lives, man, God is for me. God loves me to the point that he would send his son. Now, I, I know that a lot of us have been struggling for some time. We've been on that ocean for a long time. The clouds have been thick for a long time. But when we see the cross clearly, we are reminded of God's love. We are reminded of of his power. And it should help us. The intent is that it would help us to lay claim to that truth, even when we we can't see Jesus clearly. And the best way, if you're wondering, how is it that that I, I know it's here, but how is it that I walk in that? How is it that I, that I get up each day and, and, I, and I struggle with a doubt and I have an answer for it? We do what John did. We come back to Jesus. We come back to his word. And we say, Jesus, help me, remind me of who you are. Remind me of your love. Remind me of what you've done for me. So that this day, I, I can be absolutely sure that you are still at work. Now, his message to the, to the disciples of John is, is very clear. But it's interesting, once they leave, so at that moment, they, they probably go off, they're going to tell John, and John does, he has faith to the end. But in that moment, you can see that Jesus is maybe a little worried that the crowds who are listening will now think ill of John. They're thinking, John, the bat, I thought he believed in Jesus. Oh, he doesn't seem to, but, but look what Jesus says. Look in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury there in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written. Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So there's a lot in there. For the sake of our time today, we're going to focus on one essential point that Jesus is making. He's giving a word of of grace and encouragement both to John and to the people. See, about John, he he says, look, even though John has been questioning, even though he's he's had a moment of doubt, he, he is my prophet. More than that, he is a fulfillment of prophecy. That middle part there is where it's saying we were looking forward to to someone. It was John. John is the greatest man who ever lived because he allowed God to have his way with him. He was willing to do and say whatever God sent him to do and say. This should be really encouraging for us because what we see here is that even, even men and women of great faith can have times of doubt. There can be valley times and be dark times. And God's response in those times is is grace. You see, Jesus, he doesn't rebuke John. I mean, there's a word of warning, but he has grace for John. He lifts John up in spite of these doubts, publicly questioning his messiahship. Jesus says he's the greatest man who ever lived. Man, he's fulfilled prophecy. He's spoken what God told him to. But more than that, Jesus doesn't just encourage John. He actually encourages all the crowd. You see that line? where it says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What that's saying, if you think about it, is anyone who is part of the kingdom, any believer, any Christian, 
anyone there who had faith in him is greater than John. Which, if you think about his strength, John was a prophet of God. He's just called the greatest man who ever lived. How could we, if we're Christians, be greater than John? What Jesus means here is that all those who have access to the kingdom by faith, we have greater access to God than John did. Because we're this side of the cross. So, so we now have access to the spirit of God in a way that John didn't. We now know the whole plan of salvation. We have greater access and understanding to who God is and what he's doing. There's a, there's a greatness there that is even greater than, God, than John could have hoped for. Jesus is encouraging the crowd. He, he's encouraging John. Even in times of doubt, that's, that's God's response. is to encourage us, is to lift us up. And you would think, you would think at this moment that the people would just be overwhelmed. They'd seen an hour of power from Jesus. They'd seen great words of prophecy. You would think they would hold hands and just sing Kumbaya or a song that had been written back then and praise God. And some of them do, but not all of them. Let's look to our second part of doubt. See, look what happens in, in 29 and 30. Verse 29 and 30, there's actually two responses. Verse 29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. That's the, the positive response. But verse 30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So there's two responses. The first, uh, the regular people and the tax collectors, they believed. They heard that word and they were like, oh yes, praise God. God is just. But then there's another group. The Pharisees and the lawyers, they, they continued to doubt. They heard that and they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Well, what's the difference between these two? Well, Jesus says there's one key difference. I mean, there's probably lots of differences. One key difference, and it's, it's what's left in the white there. The difference between the two was the baptism of John. The first group, they'd been baptized by John. The second group had said, no, thank you. So what is the baptism of John? Well, uh, that was kind of his thing, right? You notice his name is John the Baptist. This is what he did. So when he was prophesying, people would come, he was in the Jordan River, and he would, he would baptize them. He would say, you need to be baptized, but it was a specific kind of baptism. Here's what it says in Luke 3.3. 3. And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's message was clear. Look, you guys, mostly Jews, you, you think you're faithful Jews, you know the Old Testament really well, but you need forgiveness, you have sin. You need to recognize your sin, turn from it, and accept forgiveness from God. And then be baptized into this new way of life, new direction. You're getting ready for the Messiah. Some of them said, you know what? John's right. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to keep the, the Torah, but I, I, need, I need the forgiveness of God. They had a soft heart towards this message of repentance. But there's another group who said, who does John think he is? Like, I'm a faithful Jew. I, I've kept the law as well as anyone. I, I, don't, I don't need forgiveness from God. I'm, I'm living out the perfection of, of what God wants for a you know, good Jewish life. The difference was the heart. On the one hand, a soft heart towards God. On the second hand, a hard heart towards God. And that is where doubt was for these people. That's the origin of their doubt. The first doubt was, was doubt from a troubled heart right, with clouds and difficulties, circumstances of life. The second kind of doubt, I would say, was doubt on a clear day. It's sunny, it's beautiful. These people are hearing the words of Jesus, seeing him clearly, and yet saying, mm, I don't think I want any of that. So how do we understand that? 
how do we understand a heart that's standing before Jesus himself, having just seen him do miraculous works, quote the Old Testament, proclaim a message of grace, and yet they say, I'm rejecting that. Well, Jesus explains it. Jesus sort of begins to preach a bit, and he gives us an analogy, an illustration. Here's what he says. Luke 31 and 32. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? He's looking at them, right? He's basically saying, what are you guys like? All you who reject me. They, they are like children sitting in a marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now for Jesus at that moment, this analogy would have just landed really well. Everyone would have been like, ah, of course, I get it now. For us, we're like, what is, he t- what is he talking about? This illustration was not specifically for us. We have to understand it. What he's saying is, look, the people of this generation who reject me, they are like kids in the marketplace. And the kids then are kind of like kids today. They, they, they play in a way that imitates adult life. So back then, some of the most fun games was to play wedding or funeral, right? The wedding I can kind of get. So the wedding, they would say, okay, uh, Obadiah, Naomi, you'll be the bride and groom. Uh, we're going to play and get the flute out. We're going to play the wedding march. Everyone's going to sing and dance. This would be super fun. All the kids are like, yay, hooray, wedding. This is fun. So they would do that. Or they would say, you know what, uh, Abraham, you be dead. You pretend to be dead. Let's play funeral, okay? Carry him. Abraham's dead. Everyone, now we're going to play the dirge, which is the funeral song. Everyone weep. Huh? This is so much fun. I don't know why it's fun. That's what they would play. But here's the thing. There were some kids who you would say, come on, let's play wedding. And they would say, no, that's boring. I don't want to play that. I don't want to dance. They'd play the thing. No, I'm not into it. They'd say, well, let's play funeral. Come on, let's play funeral. No, that's lame. I don't want to play that. Right? You know this kid, Right? This kid is, and at first, the other kid's like, well, let's, what do you want to play? Let's, they keep giving, you know, different options, but they always say no. Why? Because the problem is not with the games. The problem is not with the songs. The problem is with the kid. The kid is grumpy. The kid is, I don't know what's going on, but the kid, nothing is fun. They would say to that kid, look, there's no pleasing you. That's Jesus' point. The heart there of that child, there's no pleasing that child. There's nothing that could be done that they would say, yeah, I'm into it. They're always going to be against everything. And Jesus says that that's the heart of doubt. That's the hard heart of people who hear him and respond in this way. And then he, he makes it clear. Here's 33 and 34. He connects the two. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. And the son of man, Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying, there's no pleasing you. John came, lived a simple life, and you're like, oh, that guy, he's got a demon. Something's up with him. I come, and I'm visiting with those who are in sin and, and trying to care for them and love them. You say, man, he's, he's just into parties. There's no pleasing you. It doesn't matter what I do, what God does, you are never happy. Why? Because the problem isn't with us, it's with your heart. You have a hard heart, and you are not willing to examine your heart. And so that means that you are in a constant place of doubt. See, John's doubts, they were undergirded by his faith. He had a faith in Jesus, but he was struggling. But these doubts, these are doubts that prevent someone from having faith. In fact, these are the, this is the essential doubtfulness of humanity. Because we're in a place, they're in a place where they doubt whether they really even need God. See, many people have been on the fence about Jesus for years, right? You've maybe read a lot. You've you've been reading in the Bible. You've been coming to hear sermons. You've been questioning. And those are all good things. 
Of course, we should question, we should wonder what it is this before we believe. But what Jesus is saying is there comes a certain point where you need to question your doubts. You need to ask, ask yourself, look, is the, is the problem really with the message? Is the problem really with the messenger or, or is the problem with me? Maybe it's not Jesus that's the problem. Maybe it's not the way that the gospel is explained that's the problem. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's my pride. Maybe it's my hard-heartedness. Maybe it's my unwillingness to relinquish control of my life. Maybe I'm the problem, and Jesus is the solution. So what do you do in that situation? You do what Jesus is calling the crowd here to do, which is to humble yourself, to receive him, to not be offended by his words, to consider truly what it would mean to, to live a life of faith. In fact, this is kind of his last line. He kind of caps the whole thing up with just this short line. In verse 35, he says this, yet wisdom is justified by all her children, which sounds kind of a little you know, poetic or, or cryptic, but really what he's saying is, look, what, the wisdom that you latch onto, you will be able to, to see its validity, its worth by the fruit of it. So if you lay hold of the wisdom of the world, what what kind of fruit does that bring? What kind of life does that bring? Or if you were to latch on to the wisdom of God, what would that bring in your life? You can tell true wisdom by what comes from it. The wisdom of God, he's saying, is one that leads to greater blessing, to greater joy. The wisdom of the world is one that you already know, is one that does not bring the certainty and satisfaction that we hope for. You see this throughout the, the New Testament. This constant refrain of, of the gospel, the, the truth of Jesus, and what comes from it, the, the fruitfulness, the goodness in our life. In fact, um, one, of the, one of the parts I came across that reminded me of this was the Apostle Paul speaking to his protege, Timothy. And the reason that uh, I thought this was significant is that this is the last letter that we have that Paul ever wrote. And he's writing to Timothy. Paul knows that he's probably going to be put to death very soon. And in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 14 and 15, this is... This is what he writes. He says to Timothy, look, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What he's saying to, to Timothy is, look, Timothy, there's gonna be times when, when you're doubting, when you're worried, when the, the clouds overtake you, when you're going to be struggling, in those moments, remember the sacred writings. Remember the Bible. Remember what it is that you know about Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that you have salvation. It's in Jesus that you have the essential answer to the problems of your life. If you're wondering Timothy, if you're wondering John, if you're wondering all of us, what proof there is that God is for us, you need look no further than Jesus. Because at the cross, we see the depth of his love. We see the extent that he will go to. And we have the promise that what he begins in us, he gifts us faith. He gifts us conviction about him. He will continue. That, that's the whole Christian life. Is one in and out of storms, up and down hills, valleys, mountaintop experiences, and through all of it, the assurance that, that God is with us. So the question that's left for us is, is how we will respond. You can imagine the crowd there. I'm not sure how it ended. I don't know if anyone sang a song, but they all dispersed. 
And the question that would have been on their mind is, is how are they to respond? How will we respond? Will we, will we leave offended by what Jesus has said? Will we still look at certain aspects of our life and say, yeah, but, but what about this? Will we be frustrated? Or will we be humbled? Will we allow ourselves to be humbled by the word of God to the point that we examine our own hearts and we declare that God is just? Because it's in that that Jesus says there is salvation. There is hope. There is an answer to our doubts. Not because of our strength, not because we're so smart, but because God is working in us and overcoming our hard-heartedness by his grace. Let's pray to that end. Lord God, we are thankful. Uh, thankful, Lord, for your, for your grace in, in spite of our hard-heartedness, in spite of our, our objections. I pray, Lord, for each one of us. Lord, you know where we are at. You know, God, if we came in this morning and everything is really fine. We're just, we're just thankful for what you're doing. You also know, Lord, if, if things are really tough right now. And there are some of us who, who, who we are a person of faith, and yet it's just been really hard to believe that you are at work. Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us to see clearly that, that your character, Jesus, is, is displayed for us very clearly at the cross and that your commitment to us is to grow us in good character, in faithfulness, through the difficulties. Help us, Lord, to help us to be faithful in that. And Lord, I also pray for those of us who have been really struggling to accept you, Jesus, to know if, in fact, it's worth it, to know if it's right. I pray there, Lord, that you would give us uh, a real sense of clarity about our own heart, about whether there's been something in us that's been preventing us from, from coming to see you clearly. I pray in all of this, Jesus, that you would be glorified. Jesus, that we would, we would come to the point of being able to praise you for who you are. And I thank you. I thank you for the honesty of Scripture that shows a man who, who was your prophet and yet doubted. And God, that, that's sometimes our story. And I thank you that even there we see grace, we see encouragement, we see love. Lord, may we feel that today. May we experience that today by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.